The Old Testament is uh, quite clear um, that God's holiness one day is going to prompt him to bring judgment upon the earth uh, on a global scale. Uh, if you look at the book of uh, Isaiah, uh, chapters 24 to 27, uh, that is called the, the little apocalypse, or it's a little version of the book of Revelation. So uh, I did a, a chronological study uh, when I was in grad school back in the 80s uh, on Isaiah 24 to 27, and uh, it follows the book of Revelation in a chronological format. Uh, in fact, Revelation, from our study of the book of Revelation uh, last year, uh, I demonstrated to you how the book of Revelation is a chronological structure. Uh, with uh, parenthetical statements intersected here and there throughout the book. Uh, Gary Cohen, a, a converted Jew uh, who follows the Messiah now, wrote a book called Understanding Revelation, where he details the chronological nature of the book of Revelation. Uh, but Revelation, uh, John's Revelation, is merely built off the apocalypse uh, that was first presented by Isaiah, uh, you know, some 700 years before uh, John uh, hit the planet. And so uh, Revelation is just an expansion of that. But if you read uh, uh, I get up in the morning and read my Hebrew Bible. I'm reading through Isaiah right now. And the other day I was reading Isaiah 24. And I'm like, wow, God is most specific about his coming wrath against the godless. It says in uh, Isaiah 24 verse 5, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. Why? Well, they transgressed laws, uh, violated statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. So here he gives you... Uh, the motivation for the judgment of God. So uh, right now, God is being uh, merciful and patient with sinners. Uh, but his judgment is, is coming. And when it comes, he tells you why it's coming. Because the lost pollute the land. So all the sin that people are committing today are, is just piling up. Uh, and as you get uh, toward the time of God's wrath, it gets so polluted, God finally says, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of man breaking the laws that I've built into them. And you understand, you're born with the understanding of moral law. It's internal. Moral law. How, what to do, what not to do. That sense of oughtness uh, comes from God building it into your being. Um, and so God says, uh, one day uh, I've watched you transgress my laws, violate my holy statutes on how to live so many times uh, that I've had enough of that. And he details in great, great specificity in Isaiah 5 all of the things that the godless do, where they turn light, the light into darkness and flip everything around in a culture. So what do you see in our culture today? The flipping of everything. The great reversal of truth is being replaced by error, and error is being called truth. Um, so all that's prophesied to come. So when you get to Isaiah chapter 24, verse 19, God tells you when he comes in wrath, what he does exactly. <clears throat> So it says, uh, the earth is broken asunder when he comes. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels in true, for, true, uh, to and fro like a, somebody who's drunk. Uh, totters like a shack, a flimsy little shack. Um, goes on to say, the earth uh, uh, is like a drunkard. It totters like a shack for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. That's never been fulfilled. God has never judged the earth completely uh, in this fashion. He, ha he has with water in the Noahic flood. He has not done it in this fashion. So what you see here in, in Isaiah 24 is when God finally judges the earth, it's as if he takes it in his hands and he violently shakes it in his wrath. Uh, you can imagine. Uh, that's, that's ominous stuff. Uh, and I would say to you, if you're not a Christian, uh, what we're going to talk about today is great motivation to become a Christian. Because today's the day to trust Jesus. Uh, you don't want to miss it. 
because his wrath is coming. So when you get to Revelation 6, uh, Revelation is an expansion of the little apocalypse on Isaiah 24 to 27. Listen to what happens at the beginning of the tribulation, because in, in, in the book of Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of 21 consecutive chronological ju judgments. So it's the, it's the seven seal judgments that begin in chapter 6. At the beginning of the tribulation, notice what happens when God shakes the earth. The earthquakes. It says the, the, the kings of the earth, the politicians, and the great men, and the commanders and the rich, uh, uh, and the strong, you know, the macho guys, and every slave and free man, what they do when God shakes the earth? Hid themselves. Why? Well, they don't want to see Jesus. Where'd they go? They hide themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Uh, it says that they said to the mountains, to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him, Jesus, who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is, this is a most astonishing thing. If you go on to read, verse 17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the answer to the rhetorical question is, when God finally moves in judgment, no one can stand. You cannot withstand his judgment. Uh, and, and so they run to the caves to hide from what they know is the wrath of Jesus Christ. Isn't this interesting? That the lost know exactly what's happening at the beginning of the tribulation. You would think that they would turn to Jesus and be saved. But the heart is so hard against God, they, they don't want to have anything to do with Christ. And so uh, Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 17 verse 9 come, to, come into play. Where Jeremiah says, in his day and time, before Israel fell to the Babylonians in 586... He says the heart is what? It is more deceitful than anything, it, than all else. And it is desperately sick. Another translation reads, I think it's a King James, desperately wicked. And then he asks the great question, who can even understand the human heart and its wickedness? I mean, can you? Because it, it seems like each new week there's something else wicked that pops up on the screen that they're calling righteousness. And you're just shocked, right? So the bourgeois society is shocked by the evil that they see. And Jeremiah says from his day and time, ah, that's what I was talking about. As a nation spirals downward toward the wrath of God, who can understand the wickedness that is called righteousness? And so when you look at the pollution that is spread far and wide, that eventually motivates God to come in judgment, it leads to one question, one main question. Are you going to be in that as a Christian? Will the church be part of that when, when Jesus brings his wrath against the earth? Will the church be here? Will we be here or will we be exempt? And that's what I want to talk about because Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 5.11. So a big chunk of his book that we are, remember we're studying Thessalonians? He spends a bunch of his book on eschatology, the study of the end time. Uh, because the study of eschatology is extremely motivational. Remember, chapters 4 and 5 are all about spiritual walking, maturity. So he's talking in these chapters about how to grow up in the faith to these Christians, and half of what he's going to say has to deal with the fact that Jesus is coming back. I don't know about you, but the fact that Jesus is coming back motivates me. Doesn't it motivate you? My mother messed with me in high school and it kept me out of a lot of trouble because this is what she told me as I headed into high school and playing sports and had all kinds of rowdy friends. Son, just remember whatever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're with, is that where you want to be and who you want to be with if Jesus comes. <laughs> there it went. 
lot, a lot of, I, I, I walked out of a bar one time to go shoot pools with friends, pool with friends, just because as we're all 18 of us from the baseball team, we're going into the bar to go shoot pool and get into mayhem and stuff. I'm thinking in my mind, honey, <laughs> if the trumpet sounds, you want to be in there? I kept getting back farther and farther in the line of guys. Finally, one of my friends turns around and goes, what's up with you? Uh, I can't go in there. Why not? Trumpet sounds, dude. I, <laughs> what trumpet? Yeah, I left. Anyway, moving back to my sermon. Uh, this is not part of my sermon. This is all extra. I apologize. So, so are we going to be there for the time of the wrath of Christ? I don't think so. From a lifetime of study of the subject, uh, I don't think so. So I want to give you, uh, first of all, some reasons for the exemption. I think we're exempt. Why do I think we're exempt? Uh, what would a church service be without a chart? I want to show you a chart to help you understand what I'm talking about. So this is the chart that I want to talk about. And then this is derived from my uh, Revelation Bible study where I went through all of the prophetic positions. But since I don't have time to develop all the prophetic positions, uh, I'll just give you mine, which I think is the correct one. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so what you have is the chronological flow of history. Uh, prior to that, God was dealing with Israel and then uh, Israel rejected the Messiah and the Messiah died on the cross, Correct. And then after that, he then went into the highways and byways and called all to come into the kingdom. Uh, and the church age started at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The church age is what we, do, we, we live in now, the age of grace, where God is extremely merciful and patient with sinners. But this is going to end with the snatching away of the church, the rapture of the church. After that begins the seven-year tribulation as prophesied by Daniel in 9, 24 to 27. That then culminates with the second coming of Jesus Christ, which I'm going to show you is distinct from the rapture of the church. That then is followed by the thousand-year Davidic kingdom as prophesied in the Old Testament. And then you'll have the final rebellion of Satan. Uh, and then Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire for all time. And then uh, the kingdom is eternal then. I don't know about you, but I, I am really glad I'm not going to be part of that seven-year tribulation. So why do I think that? I'll, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list of reasons. We don't have the time. But I'll give you some of the main reasons why I don't think we're going to be there. Number one. You ready? Number one, the doctrine of eminency, eminency uh, uh, speaks of the church's deliverance. The doctrine of eminency. So Dr. Real Showers uh, uh, has written a book uh, called Maranatha, Our Lord Come. It's a definitive study of the rapture of the church. I would submit it to you to read sometime in your lifetime. Uh, this is what he says about the doctrine of eminence. He says, an imminent event is one that is always hanging overhead, is constantly ready to befall or overtake a person, is always close at hand in the sense that it could happen at any moment. That's the doctrine of imminency. So the rapture of the church that Paul's going to articulate when we get back to it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 18 uh, is distinct from the second coming of Christ. How so? Because the second coming of Christ is not imminent. Why do I say that? Because if you have a brain... And can study Revelation during the tribulation, you can calculate the arrival within, you know, proximity of time, the second coming of Christ. How so? Because all of the judgments in Revelation, the seal judgments, all seven of them, the seventh seal becomes the first of the trumpet judgments, and there's seven of those. And the seventh trumpet judgment becomes the first of the seven bowl judgments, and then boom, Jesus appears. You could count all of those. Honey, right now, we are in seal judgment seven. This is then followed by, you know, and if you were in the bold judgments, we are now in seal. Now, now we're in bold number three. You can begin to count those things and get an approximate idea about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's not imminent. Imminent is, can happen at any moment. 
any moment. Totally different. Um, the rapture of the church is distinct uh, from the second coming, as I'll show you later with another chart. So uh, where do you get the concept of the rapture? Some will say the word does not appear in Greek. And you're right. Neither does the word trinity. Do you believe in the trinity? I do. The Latin word trinitas is not in the New Testament. But we believe in the trinity because of everything we read in the Old and New Testament that shows there's a, a trinity. In fact, when it says in, the, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was, uh, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, in Hebrew, it's bereshet. Uh, in the beginning, God, ha-elohim. Ha-elohim is a plural ending. I am is a plural ending. Huh? How, why is it plural? But it's translated as a singular because the Shema of Israel, Genesis, or Deuteronomy 6, 4, Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's one in his complexity. He's amazing. But he's one in his Trinitarian concept. So uh, the fact that the word rapture doesn't appear in the New Testament doesn't bother me because it, it appears in a Latin version of the New Testament. Uh, because the, the, the word rapture, rapio in Latin, um, is merely representative of the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch away, to take something out of a situation. So if you're in a situation and you grab somebody and pull them out of that situation, you just raptured them from it. You saved them from it, whatever the situation was. Uh, the word, uh, whether it's uh, rapio or it's harpazo, the Greek, refers to an outright removal of something. So what do I believe in the rapture? Because of the Greek word. Because think about it. Uh, if, if God's going to tell you in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that the believers are going to be caught up when the trumpet sounds, he's telling you you're not going to be here. He's going to snatch you away and take you away. Where? To heaven. Uh, and then he's going to commence the, the judgment of the earth as prophesied. Uh, there are some texts which talk about the imminency of that event. I'll give you a couple of them. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be what? accursed. Because if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are cursed. Why? By your sin that you inherited from Adam, and you will be judged in eternity if you don't turn to Christ. It's a serious thing. And then he throws in this weird word. You use this word often? No. It was big in the 60s when I was going, you know. back. Remember the 60s? Yeah. Maranatha, man. <laughs> uh, what's that mean? Well, it's an Aramaic term. So it's composed of three words. And I know I'm giving you a lot of info. You with me? Yeah. Okay. It's composed of three Aramaic words. Mar, uh, which means Lord. Uh, Ana, which means our. And Tha, which means to come. Maranatha, or translated, our Lord comes. Yeah, it leads to a question. Why would Paul use an Aramaic term to churches that speak Greek? Like, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. The, the reason why he does it is everybody knew what that word meant. They all understood that Jesus' coming was imminent, and this is the word that they used as a code word among themselves. You know, like they used to draw the sign of the fish? That, and they would draw the sign of the fish, ichthus, which represented all, God, you know, the, it, the, all, each, each letter of the name fish, like the first letter, Jesus, refers to Jesus. Uh, when you spell ichthus, uh, the, the theta referred to theos, God, etc. So every Christian could draw that in the sand. And if another Christian drew that, then they knew they could talk to each other and it was safe. But they could say Maranatha to each other because they all believe Jesus is coming back at any moment. They believed in imminency. Philippians chapter 4 verse 5 says this. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Why? <laughs> the Lord is near. Let's see, how long has the Lord been gone? 
Do you know? It's, it's not a hard question. It's a softball question. How long has it been gone? More than a year? 2,000 years. But Paul says back in writing the Philippians, the Lord is what? Near. Uh, what do you mean he's near? His coming is near. Like he's right at the door, as we'll see when we get to James. Uh, he's close. He's close. His imminency can be, happen at any time. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, which we studied several months ago, which I'm sure you already under, you remember it? We'll dive back into it. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Uh, Jesus, Paul says in verse 10, he delivers us from the wrath to come. This is most important. An article is very important. The wrath, not a wrath, the wrath. What wrath? The day of the Lord's wrath, as prophesied in the Old Testament. What does Jesus do? Tells you what he does. You see the word deliver? He, he, I deliver you from that. That's why he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, uh, he's going to snatch away the saints before the time of the wrath. The wrath. The wrath of God Almighty. What do I believe in uh, doctrine and eminency? Because it's woven all through the New Testament. That, that the Lord is going to remove us when the worldwide wrath comes. So I just have to ask you a question. You ready? You, I am. I told somebody before the service, man, if the trumpet would just sound during my sermon, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, but, but the Lord's going to, going to take us. He says he's going to take you out of there. He, he's going to deliver you from the wrath to come, and it can happen at any moment. So second, second reason for the snatching away of the church. God has a program for Israel, and God has a program for the church. So think of God's program for Israel. Uh, it's based upon several covenants from the Old Testament. There's the Abrahamic covenant when God called Abraham from Ur the Chaldees to travel to Israel to become his leader, the patriarch of the great nation. Uh, he gave them an unconditional covenant and he promised him that through you and your seed, I will bless the world. So through the Jewish people, they will bless the world when they, when they know God and walk with the Messiah. That's ultimately what's going to happen. But he gave that promise to Abraham, a seed, and land parameters that would be his uh, for all time. They've never owned the land parameters as prophesied. Uh, God cut a Mosaic covenant with them. In the Mosaic covenant, um, you know the Mosaic covenant, the Big Ten? Yeah. And the, the last one's the hardest one to, to fulfill because it's internal, the last one. Uh, here, because it's easy to, to be covetousness. It's an internal thing. And then he gave us 619 additional commands to let us know exactly how to obey him. And we learned through the Mosaic Code, there is no way you can fulfill all those things. Because you're going to blow one, right? And you blow one, you blow all of them. And so the Mosaic Covenant told the people how to walk with God, but they couldn't walk with God as perfectly as they needed to. And so Paul's going to tell you in Galatians, the Mosaic Covenant was just a schoolmaster to point you to Jesus, who did come and fulfill the law and died for our sins. And then he gave them the Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy 30, which gives you the actual land parameters for the nation. And then you get the Davidic covenant, first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where in Psalm 2, all these great passages where God says, I'm going to put my Davidic king on a Davidic throne on those land parameters forever. And that great Davidic king, according to Psalm 2, is the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then you have the great new covenant, Jeremiah 30, 31, where actually God saves Israel in the future, the nation Israel. Remember, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, because if you don't, it leads to nonsense. 
Do you hear me? That's about a $40,000 education summarized in one sentence. You know, it's like, how do, what's a good hermeneutic for Bible study methods? If God says in Jeremiah 30, 31, I'm going to save Israel and redeem them and give them a new covenant, who's he talking to, Israel? Who's he not talking to, church? Because he has a kingdom program with Israel. But he also has a program for the church. So Israel is temporarily set aside because of the rejection of the Messiah. But from what Paul argues in Romans 9 through 11, uh, he starts out in Romans 9, is, is God finished with Israel? He asks the question. And then he says in Greek, me genoito. Me is the word no. Genoito is no way. It's the heart. It's the biggest way to say no way that ain't happening in Greek. Me genoito. So is God finished with Israel? Paul says no. And then he spends chapter 9, 10, and 11 explaining why God's not through with Israel yet. And then he ends chapter 11, verse 25 with this statement. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, lest you be unwise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, the nation, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel, the nation, will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He's going to save the nation. But right now, Paul says, he's dealing with the church. The church is composed of who? Jews and Gentiles. But one day, the last Gentile, the Goy or the Goyim, is saved. And when that last Gentile is saved, God says, okay, time, time for me to move on to my next kingdom program with Israel. What's he going to do? He's going to save the nation. Go read Zechariah 12 and 13, where he says he's going to save them. So remember, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. If it says Israel, it's Israel. It's not the church. So I, I believe that God has a program for Israel. He has a program for the church. They've temporarily been set aside. But when God comes back to deal with Israel, he's not dealing with the church anymore. So he takes us out of here. Because when you read Jeremiah chapter 30 about the new covenant, he says that the time of judgment that will come to Israel as a nation is called a time of Jacob's trouble. Not the time of the church's trouble. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the tribulation. It's where God purifies the nation and prepares them for the Messiah. And that's where Zechariah is going to say that when he appears, they're going to look upon him who they pierced and fall before him as Messiah. Awesome, isn't it? Where's the church going to be? In heaven. Well, God's dealing with Israel. Next reason, number three, the fact that the church is missing in the apocalyptic judgments is most instructive to me. Um, I, was, I took an exegetical class in the book of Revelation from a Cambridge professor when I was uh, in grad school, and um, Dr. Harold Honer, who's now with the Lord, great man. Um, it was a great class. But I, 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 I had to, we had to do all these charts for the book of Revelation for that class. And one, one of them I had to study, like, does the word church, ekklesia is the Greek word, does it appear in the book of Revelation? Yes. It appears in chapters uh, 2 and 3, Christ's messages to the churches. And then in chapter 4, when you're introduced to the throne room of God, there's no more ecclesia, no more church. In chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. It's not until you get to the end of the book, after Jesus comes back in the, 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 in the second coming in Revelation 19, do you run into the word ecclesia again? This leads to a very interesting question. If the word church isn't a doesn't appear in 6 through 19 of Revelation, the judgments, where is it? It's not there. Why isn't it there? Because it's in heaven with Christ. And what's God doing? He's dealing with Israel. 
That's what he's doing. He's dealing with his people. And so the fact that the, the word ecclesia doesn't appear uh, in, uh, until chapter 22 at the end of the book, verse 15, tells me uh, by its missing in all those judgment chapters, it's not there because it's the time of Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. And also because of Revelation chapter 7, at the beginning of the tribulation, God seals 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. At the beginning of the tribulation, to be his witnesses of the Messiah during the, tri- the tribulation, and they, they can't be killed. The Antichrist can't kill them. Could you imagine 144,000 Jews turned on to Jesus? And you can't shoot them? You can't kill them? They're invincible. How do I know? Study Revelation. At the end of Revelation, they count them again and say they're all there with Jesus. Imagine you're the Antichrist trying to wipe out anything God-related, and you just can't silence these Jewish Christians. Unbelievable. Uh, Why does he seal 144,000 Jews? Because the church isn't there. Did you know that? Do you know if you're a Christian right now, you're sealed, right? You're sealed. By who? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, 14. You're You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's your promise that one day you'll see Jesus face to face. He's going to remove us. Now, another thing is there, uh, point four, there are, there's 80 points. Just hold on. Uh, (laughs) I wanted there to be 80 points. So uh, there are huge differences between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, Here's a chart from one of my former professors, Dr. Norman Geisler, concerning the vast differences between the two. Uh, The rapture and the second coming. The rapture is a meeting in the air. The second coming is is a taking uh, them to the earth. We come back with Jesus at the, it, Revelation 19, rapture is we go up to be with Jesus. So what do we do? Go up and come back down? That's odd. No, we go up to be with Jesus. Just tribulation happens, then we come back. Uh, it is a taking believers to heaven, the rapture. Second coming is bringing believers back to earth. Rapture is he comes for his saints. Uh, in second coming, he comes back with his saints. Rapture is only believers see him when it happens. Uh, and then the second coming is everyone sees Jesus when he appears. Uh, rapture is no signs precede it. Why? Because it's imminent. Second coming, many signs precede it, like all those 21 judgments in Revelation. Rapture, the tribulation begins after the rapture. Second coming, the tribulation ends when Jesus appears, and then the millennial reign of Jesus Christ appears after that. They're two totally different things. So don't tell me there's the same thing. They're completely distinct. And then uh, lastly, Uh, The Christ marriage analogy validates the rapture of the church. Remember what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it wasn't so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. This is a great passage. Jesus is giving you a promise here that... I'm leaving in the ascension, but I'm coming back. And what am I doing while I'm in heaven? I, the master carpenter, I'm building you a home. No mortgage. (laughs) Awesome. No taxes on your home that go up 13% a year. Pay for it by the blood of Christ. Awesome. So he says, I'm going to build you a place and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. Why? So that you can be with me up there. Now, to understand what he's saying here, you have to understand he's talking about the Jewish marriage ceremony. That's what he's talking about. The Jewish marriage ceremony validates the rapture of the church. How so? Well, let's look at the components of a Jewish marriage ceremony, which Jesus is talking about in John 14. 
Step one in a Jewish marriage ceremony is the betrothal. It's the establishment of the marriage contract. That's when the groom traveled from his father's house to his, his bride-to-be's house, uh, and, he, and he negotiates a price for the bride. Uh, how much you want for her? Uh, you want 100 shekels? Uh, like what? Could you imagine us doing this? Anyway, how much is the bride? Well, you know, two camels and, you know, whatever. Step two. Once the price was negotiated the marriage co- uh, for the marriage covenant, uh, that was all established, and they were considered married. Uh, and, and the couple then drank a cup of wine to denote a new covenant had happened. Sound familiar? Uh, step three, the groom then left his bride at her home and headed back to his father's house to prepare a home for her, and this typically took about 12 months. Step four, at the end of the separation period, the groom came for his bride with all his buddies, and they usually came at night, <laughs> And one of the guys with the entourage let out a big shout. I don't know what they shouted. We're here. Something. And the groom did that with his buddies. And the, the bride's waiting with all of her attendants. And they're like, he's finally here. His coming was imminent. It's, it's too exciting. Step five. Uh, the bride and the female attendants, uh, they all headed back with the male attendants to the father's house. Step six, at their arrival, the bride and the groom went into the chuppah and consummated the marriage. They stayed hidden for seven days. No one's seen the bride yet. Her face is veiled. She goes into the chuppah with the, with the husband. They consummate the marriage. After seven days, the, the husband brings out his wife and removes the veil and says, Behold the beauty of my wife. Amen. You're doubting? I'm trying to help your marriage here. So... He shows his wife to all of the, the wedding attendants who are uh, there. Step seven, at the end of seven days, the groom brings her out and unveils her for all to see. This should make great sense to you in light of what Jesus is saying in John 14. Why? 2,000 years ago, Jesus left his father's house. And he came down to earth to find his bride. Step one, he negotiated a price. Price, his death. He died for the church. He died for the church. And he sealed the deal with a communion cup. They drank the wine. Every time you have communion, you're remembering that Jesus, man, we're, we're betrothed to him. Step three, Christ's ascension to the Father's house after his resurrection, Acts, six, Acts chapter one, verse six, when he goes into heaven and the, and the angels are standing there telling the disciples, why are you looking up? As he has gone, so shall he come. He went to his father's house. Why did he go there? Acts, uh, Acts 1.6 is following, tells us. Well, he went there to build a house for us. That's what the groom does. Uh, his coming for his expectant bride with his entourage and his attendants is the rapture of the church because it's imminent. It can happen at any time. And uh, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, when he comes for his bride, he comes with a shout. Don't you know he's excited? I'm excited. Uh, hopefully you can tell. Step five. He comes and takes his bride back to heaven where she's going to be purified as he judges his church. Purifies the bride, the judgment seat of Christ. First Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. He judges his church at the Bema seat, purifies his bride. Then she's hidden, not for seven days, but for seven years. And at the end of seven years, what the judgment's going on down on the planet, at the end of seven years in Revelation 19, when he comes back for Armageddon, he presents his church to all the world to see the glory of the church. Isn't it great? He's coming back to save Israel. But he shows the glory of the church. I just have to ask you, when Jesus, when Jesus comes back for his church, like that, you're going to be there. 
How do you make sure? Lord, save me a sinner. It's that simple. Lord, save me a sinner, and he will save you. Why do I believe in the rapture of the church? Because of all those stated reasons. Jesus is following the marriage analogy to the T. Now, in light of all that heavy theological stuff, I have two subpoints. I know it's shocking, but there is more. What are the reactions to the rapture? Two things. Number one, live a godly life. Paul says in Ephesians 4, If indeed you have heard from him and been taught by him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life when you weren't a Christian, you lay aside the old self like an old garment, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on like a new garment, uh, the new self, which is the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul says, what should you be doing until Jesus appears? Taking off godless things like garments and laying them aside and putting on wonderful garments that are holy. That, that's maturity. That's maturing in Jesus. Don't you want him to see you as a saint who's been working hard at growing up in the faith when you see him, when the trumpet sounds? Number two, share the gospel with anyone and everyone. Why? Well, the time is short. The time is short. Remember there was a day when they closed the door on the ark and the people pounded on the door wanting in. And no old man Noah said, you might have mocked me while I built this ark in the middle of nowhere. And now it's too late. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, uh, his final words to us as Christians are what? But you as a Christian, he says, you're going to receive power at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what should you do because of the Spirit of God's upon you? You shall be my witnesses. The word in Greek is martus. Sounds like martyr because it is. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's a concentric circle of, uh, of, of, of evangelism from where you are, your hometown, and out from there. What should you be doing until Jesus comes? Sharing the gospel of Christ with anyone and everyone because the time is short. Today's the day of salvation. The Lord's brother uh, gives us these words of uh, wisdom, and I close with these. What does John, James tell us, the Lord's brother? Be patient. That's tough. Therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord, it's hard to wait for Jesus, isn't it? You know, behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains. But you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? <laughs> the coming of the Lord is, it's at hand. That's 2,000 years ago, which means it's at any moment he can appear. He didn't come in this sermon, maybe the next sermon. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always listening. Aren't you listening? When he calls your name, won't it be awesome? Why don't you stand? And how are we going to get up into heaven? We'll all fly up to meet Jesus. Won't that be awesome? What happens to your clothes? You leaving them. You get the white raiment of, of heaven. All these other questions we'll answer at some other time. Let's pray. God, Jesus, thank you. Uh, for what lies ahead, for the hope of the saint, it is a blessed hope, as Paul talks about. May we live lives that reflect you, uh, and may we lead many people into the kingdom by sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know you. And for those who don't know you that have listened to this sermon, might the Spirit of God convict them of sin and motivate them to bow before the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.